Okay, welcome everybody. Um, it's a pleasure to introduce Florian Markowitz, uh, our uh, speaker for the for today's seminar. He is from um, Cambridge Research Institute. That's one of uh, four cancer research uh, UK institutes. And um, Florian actually graduated in mathematics with a with a diploma in mathematics in Heidelberg. Then uh, went to join the group of um, Martin Wingron. Uh, at the Max Planck Institute for Molecular Genetics in Berlin, and uh, then ended up in the in the U.S. at um, Princeton, where he did his postdoc, and recently joined the EU again to head a group at the Cambridge Research Institute. And uh, I'm looking forward to your talk. Please, Florian. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me here. Uh, what I will talk about today is uh, work that has started during my PhD and that I'm still continuing on and will continue on in my own group. Uh, and it's all about the inference of cellular networks from gene perturbation screens. And I will explain all these little parts, what a gene perturbation screen is, what kinds of networks we look at, what I mean by, by inference during, during my talk. But before we start, one thing that unites a lot of people, all the engineers, mathematicians, statisticians, uh, working in systems biology is that we all seek answers to, I guess, one very central question. What's a good way to understand a complex system? So let's ask an expert, someone who's really famous, Feynman. Richard Feynman is a physicist, famous for a lot of things, physics mostly. Uh, but also for having a sense of a, a good quote, something with some quotable thing to say. And what he said about complex systems is that what I cannot create, I do not understand. And if you look at his Rita, it makes a lot of sense because as a kid, he used to build uh, little radios. So he had this heap of uh, wires and transistors, and then he put it all together. And the way to know that you know how to build a radio is that in the end, music comes out. So something happens, it all makes sense, it all comes together. In biological research, that's an approach that you find in synthetic biology, where people use little parts of regulatory uh, pathways and put them together to achieve certain behavior. And it's also something you find in mathematical biology, um, for example, all the differential equation models, where people piece together the models they know, and they look at how they behave um, over time and, and how they behave under certain perturbations. But if you look into functional genomics, into the science about the function of genes and proteins in the cell. How do we know what these genes do? Actually, they have a different approach. Functional genomics says, what I cannot break, I do not understand. The knowledge we have about gene function comes mostly from gene perturbation studies where some gene was knocked out or silenced, and we have a mutant. And we somehow see if you take this, that's the wild type, for example, and you knock out the, the hair color gene, then suddenly the hair color of the mouse changes. Well, that's a bit oversimplified. But what I will talk about are these kinds of experimental interventions and perturbations to a system and how to make inference from those. So I don't know the parts in the beginning. I just know where to hit the system to get a response. So there are different ways to break a cell. Um, from the outside, there's outside uh, can heat those cells up. Uh, you can put them from one environment to the other. There are small molecules which can stimulate uh, receptors in the membrane and activate certain pathways in the cells. Uh, there are drugs which target particular proteins. And what I will be mostly concerned with are certain gene perturbations, single gene perturbations, either by knocking out the gene on the DNA level 
or by interfering with the RNA by a technique called RNA interference. RNA interference is, um, so what's the difference between these two? In a knockout, you really you kill, this, uh, kill the gene on the DNA level. It's the DNA that's there is non-functional anymore. This is called a knockdown or a silencing experiment where the gene is still working, it is transcribed into mRNA, but as soon as the mRNA is produced, it's killed off by a certain a small uh, RNAs. The discovery of these small RNAs brought the, um, uh, the Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine in 2006 uh, to Fire and Mellow. It's a very recent development that they found it just like 10, uh, 15 years ago, and it revolutionized large parts of biology because it was a new regulatory mechanism in the cell, but it also allowed for experimental perturbations of targeted, targeted genes. The goal in all these experiments, if we want to understand pathways and the, the, the wiring diagram in the cell is that in the end the protein is degraded, we don't have the protein left. The proteins are the players in those pathways. But the perturbations usually happen somewhere on the gene level. Now what do you do if you have knocked down a gene? Well you have to look at the thing called the phenotype, that's the response of the system uh, to the knockdown. And there's things that I call low dimensional phenotypes. And they're usually very simple. The most simple phenotype to look at is, well, does our animal, does our organism die or does it live on? You don't do that with whole organisms, but you do it like with single cells. And you have either viable or non-viable yeasts or, or cells. Um, you can also look at the growth rate, which is a bit more refined than just looking at uh, death or viability. Or you can look at the activity of certain reporter genes. So if you're interested in one specific pathway in the cell, you put a luciferase, something glowing green, uh, underneath the pathway, you start to knock down genes. Every time the light goes out, you know, well, somehow I might have hit a, comp a component of this particular pathway. You find a lot of um, uh, examples in the literature where people use that on a genome-wide scale to identify genes which are essential for organisms or essential for individual pathways. And indeed, these methods are they provide you candidate genes for further for follow-up analysis, and, uh, but they are hard to relate to specific gene functions and pathways. So if you know I hit gene A and the cell died, there could be so many reasons why the cell has died. So it's hard to really say what this protein was, uh, was involved in. So that prompted newer developments in gene perturbation screens where people look at uh, high-dimensional phenotypes. It's called high-content screening. And one example are morphological features of the cells. So you see that there are these cavities here in this, uh, I think this is a warm embryo, which shouldn't be there. So in the normal healthy cell, it's really all round and nice, and once you knock down one of these genes, it all, has all these cavities and looks strange. Um, or these, the wing is deformed here uh, in a way it shouldn't be. These are all outside looks on the cell, how the cell looks from the outside. Other methods, and that's what I will be concerned with, allow you to look inside of the cell and look at the activity of all the genes genome-wide in the cell. And the way these are, the things are called are microarrays, gene expression arrays, and each gene expression array allows you to measure the activity of all the genes in the cell on, on the mRNA level. So it's the mRNA concentrations of the, of the genes. And the idea is, if you use this as uh, a phenotype, you have the system which is made of the genes which are then transcribed and translated into proteins and you do a perturbation and you can measure how all the other genes change 
at least in, their, uh, in the quantity that they are uh, in there in the, uh, in the cell as a result of that perturbation. And the idea is that that should give us some insights into the molecular mechanisms and pathways in the cell. So what I'm concerned with here in the engineering uh, viewpoint, it's like uh, systems identification, reverse engineering of networks. So the particular networks or pathways that I'm interested in look like this. They start with a receptor at the cell membrane which gets, which sends us some environmental stimulus and the pathway that I'm interested in is a signaling pathway which relates this outside signal somewhere into the nucleus of the cell to the DNA level where it then activates some genes so the cell can adapt to changes in the environment. And these pathways consist of a receptor, some protein cascades and transcription factors. So these protein cascades, for example, that's one protein, could be kinases, where one protein phosphorylates the next protein, phosphorylates the next protein, and so on, to pass on the signal from one to the next. At some point, they come to specialized proteins called transcription factors, which can come from the cytoplasm into the nucleus, and they are bind to DNA and regulate the expression of other genes. So this is important, that, uh, and that will be a main point of my talk, that the pathway here is on the protein level, it's about proteins interacting with each other, but it will turn out what we can measure in the end are the things down here, the gene expression changes in the nucleus. So there's a certain gap between the things you're interested in and the things we can measure. And I will uh, tell you that in a lot more detail. So that was a short introduction and like the, the broad score, the big view of what I'm doing. Um, what I will show you is a small example in Drosophila immune response of how to reconstruct pathways from gene perturbation screens. And in fact, it's such a small example that we all together here can work it out on the screen. So you can really see what the logic behind that is. And I will show you that this example already poses a methodological challenge. And I will show you a new approach how to address that challenge that I call nested effects models uh, for reasons that becomes very apparent when, once you see how it works. And I will end by showing you how I will use, extend, and uh, apply that in my own lab. So here's a little example. So that's from a collaborator of mine who's now in, in, in Heidelberg at the German Cancer Research Center. Uh, and he's a fly guy. He's interested in Trosophila, in pathways in Trosophila, and especially in immune response pathways. And so what these pathways do is, if you put something, this thing called LPS, that's lipopolysaccharides, that's something from gram-negative bacteria from the cell wall, if you treat cells with that, the cells think they're under attack. So they should react in their immune system. And if you do these microarrays where you measure the expression of genes in the cells, you see the first two columns show you how the genes, that's the rows in the plot, how the genes in the immune system behave differently after being treated with lipopolysaccharides. So the first column is, that's green, so forget about the stuff down here. The first column is almost green, almost all the way, uh, everywhere green. That means these genes are downregulated, they are not active, nothing is happening, the cell is happy. Second column, these genes become red, and that's after treatment with this outside stimulus. So suddenly the immune system goes on, the cell wants to defend itself, all those genes become active. The question was, how which proteins, which pathways relate the signal from the cell membrane that there is this attack to the genes that react to it in the nucleus. Now what my collaboration partner knew is there are some candidates called Relish, Key, Tech, and these kinases here, uh, MKK4 and HEP. 
they somewhere work in the pathways relating, relating this, uh, this, this, this signal. So what he did is, while there was signal going through his system, while the stimulation was there, he started to knock them out. So he did it by RNA interference, so that there's n uh, like no protein left in the end, and he sees how that changes the signal, the signal flow. And you see a very interesting pattern. So relish and key, these two columns look almost the same, and what they show is that the upper half of the genes, they are still red, they look much more like the positive control where the signal is coming through than the control, the unstimulated cell. So that's what you would expect to see. But the lower half of the genes looks all green. It looks like the unstimulated genes, uh, cell. So all these genes here didn't get the message anymore that there is an attack to the cell. The same here in tech. All these genes are, none of them is red anymore. They are blackish or green here. So they certainly don't look like the attacked cell. They look like the happy cell. So none of these genes gets the message anymore that they are under attack. And for these kinases here, it's the opposite of relish and key. The upper half is green, the lower half is red. So if you sum this up, it seems that tech is important because it reduces the expression of all the inducible transcripts. Everything is green. And these other here, they only reduce the expression <laughs> of subsets. Good. So that was... He did these experiments before we started to collaborate, so he didn't have any bioinformatician. He did by eye informatics. So he stared a really long time at this plot. And he came up with a pathway hypothesis, some way how he thought how these four things here work together to produce the signal. And what he came up with is this. So LPS is coming to a receptor entering a pathway called the immune deficiency pathway, where at the central position you have TEC1, and then you have a branching in two sub-pathways. One where you have relish and key, and the other one where you have these other two, uh, two kinases. Now when I saw that for the first time, it was hard for me to understand how you can relate this data here to that pathway. And I want to show you how this works because the way these, the branch is seen is that if you knock down tech, all the genes react, versus like all of these branches, one of these branches is just responsible for one of these subparts of the reacting genes. So the ones sitting underneath relish are the ones which get turned off by the relish uh, perturbation. Whereas the ones sitting in the other subbranch are the ones which get turned off uh, after the, the perturbation of these two kinases. So what you actually see is that's like all genes reacting and these are just subparts. You see the pathway structure reflected in a subset relation in your data. Now, the interesting thing about this is when you think you have a pathway, four players involved, and you are able to knock down things and observe effects, it should actually be, be, be easy to piece together the pathway. So imagine you could see changes in the activity states of the pathway players after each perturbation. Then if you knock down A and you would see that B, C and D react, you would know that A is on top of B, C and D. And if you knock down D and nothing changes, you know that D is at the bottom of a cascade. So if you had direct observation of the states of the players in the pathway, by, by really simple logic, you would piece together the pathway. What the example from the last slide showed us is there the, the uh, situation is completely different. The pathway is kind of a gray box where we just know that there are certain players sit in there. We cannot see how they change, but what we see is the exp uh, changes of the expression of downstream genes. Was that a question? Yeah. Yes. 
Is that from a single cell or a single, a single experiment or is that averaged over? Many That's averaged over, over many cells. So on the experiment, on the, the, the logic from the, um, the, the example on the last slide never involved the, the, um, the expression levels of these four genes. They are flat because the pathway works on the protein level and you can have the same amount of protein but still some changing activity stays and others don't. Um, but the whole logic how my collaboration partner started to infer this pathway is by looking how the sets of genes downstream of the pathway change in activation. So that's what I call the information gap. We want to learn about the structure of the pathway here, but the only thing we are given is changes of expression downstream of the pathway. Now, that actually has severe consequences for any approach to, to uh, re-engineer these, uh, these networks. Um, so what people, like what many people are doing is this. If you have to reconstruct the pathway and you're given data, in my case it's most gene expression data, you look up your players in your pathway, in your data, and you use many different kinds of statistical models to, to use the correlation structure of the pathway to tell you who interacts with whom. So you can do correlation networks, certain kinds of graphical models, including Bayesian networks, Gaussian graphical models. You can build models based on mutual information. What unifies them is that they all use the information you have about your pathway players in the, in the data. What the example showed us, there may not be any information. These things are just flat. What you get is data on the, well, that's what the information gap showed us. What you get is data of the downstream genes. So all the things looking at the uh, correlations between the, uh, um, the, the players and the pathway, they may not get the right signal. The signal is downstream of the pathway. What can you do with that? Well, of course, you can always cluster and correlate things with each other. But I, what I will show you in the next slides is that you exploit additional structure in the data, which will be certain subset relations inspired by this example, then you can get even more information about the pathway structure. So to motivate why we use subset relations, look at these little thought examples here. Imagine you have a kinase regulating two transcription factors. And now imagine you start to knock things down. So if you knock down one of the transcription factors, it has certain targets. The other transcription factor has other targets. Maybe they overlap, maybe they don't. But now the kinase is directly regulating both of them. What happens if you knock down the kinase? Well, you would expect that you get the, the effects you would see under the perturbation of one transcription factor and the other, and maybe some more, because who knows what else the kinase is regulating. <coughs> what happens if you have two transcription factors regulating the third one? Well, this one has targets. If you knock down the first transcription factor, well, since it's regulating this one, you would see those effects plus the effects the transcription factor has on its own. And if you knock down the other transcription factor, it's, it's like this, and the transcription factor three effects are in the intersection of these other sets. If two transcription factors have to work together to fulfill their function, you would, under both perturbations, see the same set of effects. And if you have a, a, a cascade, well, the transcription factor here has some targets. The kinase here can have many other things it regulates, so it but it should at least have uh, those targets, and the kinase up here may even have more um, effects. So this slide shows you how to relate pathway structure to subset relations in the effects you see downstream of the pathway. Now, what I did is I built a model which as an input takes a set of candidate pathway genes, and high-dimensional phenotypic profiles that just long vectors 
saying yes there was an effect or yes there wasn't on some things downstream of the pathway which is basically a matrix like this. So these are eight genes that were perturbed, uh, that's the rows, and the columns are possible effects on other players in the, in, in the cell. And black means that you saw an effect and white means that you didn't. And what it does is I take in this data and I give you back a graph representation of the structure we see here. For example, that A and B have effects almost everywhere. So they are undistinguishable, they look almost the same, they should be clustered together. But the effects you see here, the black, this black block here, is a superset of, for example, the effects, the black block you see for C and D. So C and D work underneath A and B. They are more localized and A and B have a more global, uh, global function. Now, how do you do that? Data is noisy, so we need a probabilistic model. Um, before I tell you how the likelihood works, let me tell you what this, one of the uh, advantages of this model is. Uh, if you naively link each perturbation to all its effects, you get a picture like this, where you have perturbed genes and other genes which react if you perturb them. And it's a very crowded plot, lots of edges in there. What the method based on subset structures does is, it clears up the picture and tells you, well, if we see that, that this guy here has effects on all the things that the other two have too, and it's a superset, it's very likely that the guy in the middle actually regulates the other two, and we have two smaller regulatory units under the common control of, of, uh, of a third protein. And this is more unlikely because it induces so many regulatory relationships, and we think those are uh, sparse. Now, how do we do the likelihood for our model? Um, I wrote all this up in the language of, of graphical models. So we have graphs and uh, local probability distribution, so we can write down likelihoods and posteriors. And the way it works is like this. We have a two-layered graphical model. Uh, the first layer, that's our pathway. That's actually a deterministic network where effects just travel along the edges. The second level, that's our effect reporters. That's the, where the data comes from. That's the level we can observe. And we have connections between these two levels which tell us which members of the pathway have which regulatory targets, so which regulatory modules exist in, 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 in the cell. If you have this full model, you can write down a matrix telling you what your expectations are, how the data should look alike. So if you knock down X, you should see all these effects. If you knock down Y, you should only see effects on E3, 4, 5, and 6, because these two effect reporters are upstream of Y in the pathway. And what you would get in the, in the real data are, of course, false negatives and false positives. So we need a way to relate our expectation from the model to the observed data. And the way we did that is, the model for us is just the upstream, the, the upper part of the graph. The data are the states of the observable effect reporters, and the parameters that are unknown to us are these connections between the two levels. So if we had the full likelihood, if we knew the full model, so this part plus these connections, it's very easy to write down a likelihood. So if we knock down set, then, and we have some predictions from the model that this guy is zero and this guy is one. And now we do uh, um, um, measurements and replicate them. So we have like two measurements of the states of the effect reporters after perturbations. We could see a picture like this, where in the first experiment, uh, the first e-gene, uh, the first effect reporter reacts and the second one reacts too. In the second experiment, the first doesn't and the second one does. In many experiments, you have controls, so you can get, actually get estimates of false positive and, and false negative rates. 
And if you assume that the replicates are independent and your measurements are independent, then it's easy to write down the likelihood as a big product over the effect reporters and over the replicates using the probabilities to see false or true positives and negatives in, in your data. What is more problematic is that these links here are actually unknown. So you don't know a priori which protein has which regulatory influences downstream. So what we have to do is, so that's the part you just saw, that's the likelihood of the data given the model and the parameters. Well, if you don't know the parameters, one way to do it, treat them as nuisance parameters, integrate them away. And that's what we have done and the ugly formula we got is this. The main part is, what's the probability to see certain state of one of the effect reporters given the model and that we assume we know its position? multiplied over the replicates we have for this observation, averaged over the possible positions this uh, reporter can be in the model, that's, that's, that's the integral here, and then the product over all the possible effect reporters, and you get some prior, and we use the uniform prior, so that's this, but if you have more information on which of your proteins are transcription factors and which targets they have, it's very easy to integrate this here in this part and, and integrate when you integrate over it. So what this allows you to do is, that's a, that's a marginal likelihood, that's the likelihood of the data given, uh, given the model. Now you can start to score models, so you can decide which model fits the, uh, fits the data better or worse. How do you do inference with that? Well, the space of models is the space of all transitively closed directed graphs. So why are these things transitively closed? Because what I model are subset relations, and subset relations are always transitive. If you have some small set, If you have some small set, which is the subset of a bigger set, and you have an even bigger set, then of course the even bigger set is also bigger than the small set you started off with. So that means the graphs we have have always like, when they have a path from one node to the next, they also have direct transitive edges in there. And that's a pretty, it's not a good space to optimize over for various reasons, mostly because the, um, the edges are not independent of each other. Transitivity always means when there is a path, there has to be a direct edge. So you can't just leave certain edges out. That makes this more hard than learning in Bayesian networks where you have directed acyclic graphs and you can do local computations and local edge changes. We can do that here. So the first thing we did is, in the very small example I showed you in the beginning, you can actually do exhaustive enumeration. And for just four genes, you have 360 something uh, graphs, you can still enumerate them. Um, for seven or eight genes, you already have 10 billion graphs and it stops, to make, uh, stops making sense. The funny thing is, we don't even know how many graphs there are for, let's say, 18 uh, nodes. I just found a paper from 2005 where some very smart graph theorists had just showed or estimated the number of uh, transitively closed graphs on 16 nodes. So we don't even know how big the number is for 17 or 18. Um, that's a bit frustrating because most of the pathways you would look at are at least uh, have 30, 30 nodes. So what we did is we did a very simple approach which was like a divide and conquer approach where you take the complete model, the complete graph, break it down to smaller graphs which you can solve and then reassemble. And the smaller graphs we used was either looking at individual edges or lo looking at triplets of nodes and solve these small problems and piece them back together. Um, one of the problems, so we thought, huh, 
if transitivity is such a problem, maybe we can rid of it, can get rid of it, and you can actually can. So this is the, the a transitive graph where you have a path from X to Z and a transitive edge and certain predictions it makes. Um, excuse me, that was the wrong slide. Before I come to that, the first thing is, of course, um, this picture is black and white. So it's some, somehow things either have an effect or, um, or not. But very often, uh, if you analyze your data, you may get, see that the, some effect is more likely or not. So um, if you work on microarray data, very often you, you just look at differential expression and you do a t-test and you get a p-value or a log ratio for seeing an effect. And so instead of the black and white picture, you would have a gray picture where some areas are less dark than others and you still would like to, uh, to formulate the likelihood. So the way we did this is we have a likelihood based on log ratios of effects. Uh, so log ratio is just a number which tells you how much more likely it is to see an effect than not. And we can write down our, our likelihood here up to a constant as the trace of a product of the three matrices and the three matrices are actually the three parts of the model. So the matrix here, that's the adjacency matrix of the graph up here. The second matrix is the connections. And the third matrix is, that's basically the data, that's a matrix which for each perturbation and each effect reporter tells us how likely it is to see an effect in there. So now I come, I was, I was too fast for myself. So while we were doing this, we also thought how we could relax the transitivity assumption. And you can actually drop this uh, requirement it's only that the, the models that you get, the predictions that they make, change a bit. So if you have a model with a transitive edge, you see that if you perturb X, then all the genes attached downstream should show an effect. It's all black. If you drop out this edge, then in our model, the genes down here shouldn't show an effect anymore because there's no direct um, edge anymore from X to Z. These are simple graph theoretic manipulations which can be translated into certain expectations here. The algorithm just runs through. It doesn't have a problem. You can still get your likelihoods and everything. The problem is what you lose is a lot of the um, interpretability of what you see because you have a very clear, this you can very clearly interpret as some, a set of nested uh, subsets and here it's much harder to see what, what, what that really is. And whereas here you have a kind of an idea of, of causality working its way through a cascade, here you don't really know. The last thing we did is um, microarray data measure all the genes genome-wide, so that's a lot of genes. But for any particular pathway, only a subset of these genes may be important. So we actually want some kind of um, um, a feature selection mechanism to find those genes, those features which are important for the one specific task we want to solve. The way we implemented that is introducing a node which we call the null node which predicts no effects whatsoever. So all the genes which consistently show small effects in all perturbations get attached to the null node and only the genes which show some interesting effects are used to build the model. So that kind of is can be used inside the model building to clean up the data and throw out the uninformative features. So here's a picture of what comes out in our model if we use it on the small uh, um, example I started off with. And for some reason that I always 
I, I don't really know. Every time I give this talk, I'm, I, I wonder why we put the whole thing upside down because actually tech should be on top. So you see there's tech and there's a branching here. There's Relish and MKK4 on the other side. And these two guys that you saw in the first place had these very similar phenotypic profiles. They are connected by a double-headed edge, which means they're undistinguishable in our model. So basically we model subsets, so one subset goes in the one direction, one in the other, so we can't distinguish them. And you see how that relates back to the data, to the log ratios for effects uh, we see down there. Now this was of course not the only example we applied it to. It was just the first and it's the smallest and the most easy to explain. Um, I also used that on a transcription factor network in yeast. And independently of me, uh, several people picked up these class of models and worked on it. And uh, some used it on, on pathways in, in breast cancer. And recently a group used it on colon cancer and on uh, stem cell differentiation in, in mouse. Um, but these models are all much bigger and you need to much more introduction what they really stand for and what these pathways do. So, what I've told you so far is um, that I work on gene perturbation screens with gene expression readouts and that one of the big, the big problems in there or the big, the big features of these kinds of screens is that you have the information gap between the thing you want to observe and the thing uh, the, the one, want to infer and the thing you can observe. And I showed you that looking at the nested uh, stru uh, structure in the data is one way to bridge this gap. Now what I want to show you in the following slides is how in the future I plan to extend and apply that. And here's a recent paper. So one of the things is it's all static. All the data I have are snapshots. They uh, just tell you if you perturb and then at some arbitrary time point you take a measurement what is the state of the cell at, uh, at that particular time point. So some people started to address that. So there was a very recent paper um, where people looked at well, time course data, so in biology time course, in, like in, in genomics, time course often means uh, five time points uh, every two hours each. Um, and that was the, the example in mouse embryonic stem cells, um, where you have, you have your graph again, that's the genes, the, the pathway genes, the players, one, two, and three, and for each one you have some effect reporter, but now you don't have one snapshot, you have like five time points where you can either see an effect or don't. And what they did is they took the last time point, number five, and learned a network, basically the, the same kind of network that I introduced to you. And then they used the dynamic information to clean up the network and look for uh, feed-forward loops. So basically they counted how many time units it took for an effect to travel from, from one edge or the second edge and how long it took to get there directly. So in the example, if you look here closely, you could see that there are effects which take one, two time units along this path, but actually when you look in the data, they only just take one time unit, which means they see that as evidence for some, some feed-forward loop here. And this, this is important because, again, my, we always have these transitive edges in here, and that gives us one way to decide whether that's a technical artifact of my method or a real feed-forward loop. Now, I don't want to do that, that's already been done, but I have some, oops, some other ideas of how to make my models more dynamic. And one is, uh, one is on the definition of what it means to see a perturbation effect on a certain gene. Uh, if you are in a static picture, you can basically do differential expression analysis where you see things going up or down. 
if what you see for one gene is a whole time course, it gets much more interesting to decide whether this is more like the, the wild type time course or where it changes and by how much, because it can change in many different ways, not only by a change in mean. The second way is to borrow some uh, technology from the machine learning people who have used static Bayesian networks and made dynamic Bayesian networks out of them by having interactions between, between time slides. And I think there's very easy ways to do the same extensions to the, uh, uh, to the nested effects models to have subset relations from one time point to the next instead of within time points. And the most interesting question, especially in the scenario where you have a developmental process, is that of course the network, there's no, there's, must, there's, there's no reason that it should uh, stay static all the time. So it may be that the wiring diagram you want to infer changes over time while the organism is developing. Uh, especially in stem cells we know that there are certain transcription factors which are especially important in the beginning and there are certain uh, regulatory mechanisms very important in the beginning which are no longer important once the cell is differentiated. So one part of that, so once we got to step three is to reconstruct from our data time varying rewiring in our networks. Uh, the second, so that's really a methodological project. One of the interesting applications is using my models to put RNAi hits into context. So RNAi was the technology where you can genome-wide perturb genes. Most people don't do that coupled with microarrays, they just look at uh, very small, uh, low-dimensional reporters like activity of, of some signaling proteins. So what they do is they rank all their genes by phenotype and the ones with the strong phenotypes they call hits and then they have no idea how to, how to figure out what these proteins, which are their hits, what they do, what function they have, at which place they work in pathways, how, who they interact with, by which mechanisms those genes created this phenotype. Now what we propose is to follow up this genome-wide screen in step one with some follow-up analysis which works like this. We have some information that the hits they found here all work together in the NF-kappa-B pathway. So what we propose is to do follow-up experiments where we knock down, should be worry or? Oh, good. Where we knock down known pathway members of this pathway. Um, where we knock down known pathway members and the new hits that came out here. So we know that those guys somehow must be in the pathway. So if we have the data for the known members and the new hits and then comparing them in some model, for example nested effects, should give us an indication where they work in the pathway. So to give you an easy example, if we knock down the two red ones, that's our new hits, and this one, this blue one, we should be uh, able to figure out that this red one works in that, the same branch of the pathway as this blue one, versus the other red one works in a different branch. So this information is already a big step forward for them uh, because so far they have no idea at all where these proteins uh, work in and uh, I think that my method can do that. And the last um, application is again in, in stem cells So with a collaboration partner in Seattle. We are working in trying to figure out what we call, you, you need these big passwords, uh, potency networks. The idea is to look at three different types of stem cells. Uh, embryonic stem cells, neural stem cells, and induced pluripotent cells uh, in mouse uh, and figure out whether the, the differences you see in developmental potency between these cells if and how they are reflected by differences in the wiring 
and the regulatory mechanisms in the cells. So these here are by far the most, most potent. They are embryonic stem cells. They can become any kind of cell in the body. These are confined to be neural cells. And IPS are a certain kind of cells which are pretty new. Um, they are normal cells where, which are treated with certain description factors to in the end look like embryonic stem cells. So you can de-differentiate differentiated cells. And that's like a, a big thing in the stem cell world right now. And what people have done so far is to check for different markers and said, well, given all those markers, the cells over here look like those cells. But what we want to do is we want to zoom in into the molecular mechanisms and see whether on the inside the things still look the same. And the idea is to, to, to use knockdowns and uh, transcription factor binding data in parallel, so on the same proteins in all three types of cells, so we can reconstruct networks on the same set of proteins, on the same node set, and then start to compare it. And for example, see that certain branches are not active in cells which have a less developmental potency, or that in those cells which are induced, some new player comes in and plays a role in already defined pathways. So with that, I want to close and thank my friends and collaboration partners. So it turned out there's a small community already uh, around nest defects models. Uh, central player there is Rainer Spang, that was my PhD supervisor, who also had the, the dynamical NEM paper. But there's other papers and other, uh, other people in, in other universities uh, writing papers about that now. My collaboration partners for the biological projects for the um, RNAi screen and the NF-kappa-B pathway will be André Moira and Thomas Meyer at the MPI for Infection Biology in Berlin. And Patrick Pattison at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center is my partner for the stem cell project. And thank you for having me and thank you for listening to me. Yeah, thank you very much, Florian. Um, the round is open for discussion. Please. So with these models, you build up a, uh, you postulate a pathway. How do you validate that if you can't, uh, uh, you know, if you can't take measurements? How do you know if it's right? So once you have the pathway, you can actually take measurements of, of, of certain uh, connections. But the reason you can't use them in the beginning to infer the pathway is that these measurements are very focused on specific proteins, and you can't do them on a, on a, on a uh, genome-wide or on a, on a, on a wider level. Um, so for example, in the, the, the example in the very beginning which showed this branch has been validated in experiments as a real branching in the, uh, in, in, in the pathway. Um, I think some of the other pathways, uh, so my own work in, in yeast I have like internally validated by comparing it against known hierarchies of transcription factors and I could show that indeed the transcription factors known to have many targets and sitting on top of the hierarchy are the ones that in my uh, model also come out on top of the hierarchy. Um, and that was completely different data, it wasn't microarrays, it was binding data, something completely different, still our hierarchies uh, matched up. Um, but I mean, you're right, so in the end, like, the validation will be the big problem because you basically have to validate that edge by edge then. So you have this, I guess, if you just have this single set of data, it's any loop is going to turn into just a, a cluster of things that are all... Yes. Uh, and you were talking about this technique that these other guys have come up with to some way unravel that, will that unravel all loops or will there still be... No, no, it's... Um, what they, so if you have really a loop closing back on itself and 
then I would actually see that as one big cluster in my model. What they can do is, so I have to kind of a technical, I don't know, I don't know if it's a bug or a feature, but I'm restricted to a transitively closed graph, so I always have the transitive edges in. What they have is a way to see whether there's evidence for real interaction in a transitive edge or not. Okay. So they say, uh, if the time it takes to walk through the path is the same as for the transitive edge, then let's throw it away. But if it's quicker, then it must be a more direct influence. That's then a feed-forward loop. Okay. Is there any further question? So you're saying you can't identify feedback loops? Yeah, I have a problem with feedback loops. Yeah. Uh, the problem there is it's, um, well, I claim, of course, that it's not a limitation of my method, but a limitation of the data. Because in all these uh, data, they are static snapshots at arbitrary time points. And when at least the people that I work uh, well, in, in all of genomics, time series are very short and there's no, you, you can't really see a, a behavior over, over fine-grained uh, time points. So, and as long as that's not there, I can't include any, any uh, feedbacks and, and, and anything in my models. Do you have any feeling for, you know, basically, from what I understood, your subset, uh, method of subset identification is kind of a orthogonal partitioning of the, of the graphs, is that right? So I, I do you have any, any, um, any feeling for what type of graphs you can do that for and what type of graphs you can't do it for? Like not, not everything, I presume, can be partitioned in the way you're... So, do you have any evidence for... Well, clearly, you have a feeling that the biological methods behave like in a hierarchical... Well, I mean, the examples I showed you at some point, like... Um, the one where you have like the branching and things coming together and the cascades. So that's all the main building blocks of, of biological pathways. So we can get all of those and we have an idea why we see this specific behavior in the, in the data. Technically, we of course have some identifiability issues with the model. Mm -hmm. And especially when it comes to, um, um, uh, to circles in the network and then we can't even uh, get the connections between the effects and the things up there in the network right because things can be permuted and so there are identifiability issues. They all come from the fact that we don't have direct information about the graph but only the information about this, this second level. So there's a lot of stuff on the, in the, on the unseen level that can be under certain, uh, in certain situations can be changed without this change being visible uh, in the data. But for all for all the, um, the graphs or biological pathways you would just come up with without being too mean, uh, you would not get these, 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 these issues. So, maybe I have the last question. Um, if you push it to the limit, what is the current size of models you can analyze, like in terms of numbers of perturbation experiments, so numbers of players? Yes. So each perturbation experiment is one player. Yeah. Um, it depends by which inference method, what I use. Uh, if I do pairwise, um, it could be hundreds. Um, if I do triplets, it's a bit less. But, so the big thing here about this model is n I don't want to scale this up to any huge size. Um, what I like about this, and that's the way we got started, it's very focused to one specific pathway. To make my model work, you need 
one specific target pathway, you need specific controls for the kind of signal or stimulation you're interested in. You're very focused on one specific situation. And I think that's a strength and not a limitation. Because the more focused you are, the better your controls are, the better you're able to define your effects, the more sense the pathway structure will make in the end. So what I aim for are maybe 10, 20, 30 um, um, perturbations. That's like a decent pathway size for me. And that's easily manageable with all the, uh, with the inference methods we have so far. Okay, so let's thank Florian again. Thank you.